nonsense space, continuing the journey of wrestling with Christianity. Um, it's been very rich so far. I'm really excited to continue today. And uh, today we wanted to offer some words of intention and kind of plumb the depths of the space a little bit before we plunge into the dialogue. And we agreed that it would be a good idea to maybe do that as part of the recorded part. Um, yeah, in the spirit of exemplifying the experiment of what dialogue might look like. So yeah, with that, I just want to invite you all and perhaps anyone who's listening to just take a moment and settle into ourselves, settle into our bodies, settle a bit deeper into our media experience. Often beginning with a deeper connection with the breath. Letting the quiet gather. Letting the energy and excitement for this conversation, all of the unknowns before us, holding that, holding that energy, breathing into it, feeling its fullness. And then beginning to bring a listening into that space. listening with our hearts, our bodies, and our fullest sensing. What kind of journey, what kind of pilgrimage do we want to invite? What kind of qualities of kinship and fellowship do we want to animate that journey such that the journey itself becomes more important than the destination. And what spirit or spirits we want to invite to accompany us and animate us in the undertaking of this dialogue and the greater pilgrimage of which it points to. And as I spoke to before, if there's anything else that wants to be added, please feel welcome. And otherwise, your silence is also a welcome addition to this introduction. All right, then bless you guys, bless the listeners, and uh, bless this conversation we're about to have. Amen so to that. Talk about pilgrimage. Invite you a pilgrimage.
Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I cut you off the mound. <laughs> no, I was saying, I mean, something we were discussing beforehand maybe as a place to kind of jump in was uh, my own experience of pilgrimage, which became very real recently. Um, when I spent, I spent August doing the Camino to Santiago, which is from France. So we started in St. John in France, and then you walk from France across the whole of Spain, pretty much, um, to Santiago. So it's like 800k in total. Uh, it took like 32 days. Um, and you start off like the first day walking over the Pyrenees for like eight hours, just straight uphill of like 30k. And then um, kind of progress. It's quite, it's a very long journey. Like, so what I was saying beforehand was that it was just really difficult. <laughs> it was the kind of spiritual hopes of, um, a journey that was going to be like, you know, just floating along kind of nicely was not realized. It was like difficult, tired, grumpy, got food poisoning, uh, didn't sleep a lot of the time, completely uphill, uh, feet were just destroyed. Um, but at the same time, I suppose that something that I thought about a lot was that, um, the path of virtue or the path of moral is difficult. Like that was something that kept occurring because there's always like uphill and downhill. There's an easy way. There's a harder way. And the pilgrimage is definitely the harder way. Um, so I suppose maybe that's a place to start is that why would you voluntarily suffer so much for something? The reason, you know, and it does seem to translate to a lot of life and that we're all struggling to justify maybe that suffering in some ways. And, take the easy way too much with technology and all of the options available. So maybe that's a place to jump in. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on that. Yeah. I, first of all, I want to say thank you, Jacob, for that wonderful introduction. And um, I feel that was, that was really beautiful. And man, for sharing that, that I want to throw one um, clarification by distinction on that has always been helpful for me in thinking about pilgrimages to distinguish between the pilgrim and the tourist. And to engage as a tourist with, they, they're both an experience of going to a place that's different from your home. And, but the, the posture of the tourist is, is sort of consumptive. And it's, it's also oriented around the notion of comfort. It's comfort and consumption. And this is contrasted to the pilgrim, where rather than trying to intake something outside myself, break it into pieces and be comfortable, the pilgrim is attempting to go through something difficult to come into right relationship with something that is already there. So there's a movement, there's like this, movement into a thing to be, to become shaped by a thing as the pilgrim whereas the tourist is attempting to shape the thing to myself and i think man your your description there is so so wonderfully embodied participatory um experience of being shaped in a rough and difficult and unexpected way by something as opposed to simply, you know, consuming something in a, in a comfortable sense. 
100 percent it's like plotinus and the sculpture how you know in the path of virtue you get chipped away all the time until you kind of take on a better form and i definitely felt how abrasive that process was and in such a short space of time um which is really yeah i mean it i suppose something that's coming up as well is the idea of faith like requiring faith to undertake the journey at all um because it did require i knew lots of people on it that quit that just stopped that just gave up like that had plans of doing the whole thing but you know maybe they drank too much one night and then they couldn't get up later and then they got sunburned or there was like all these obstacles and people um the people that seemed to finish it seemed to really have something that they were holding on to in that way that got them through it exactly the difference between the tourist and the pilgrim i think is how much faith you have in that transformative journey. Well, everything that's been said is magnificent, and the distinction between the tourist and the pilgrim is uh, invaluable. So thank you for that, Ken. And it makes me think. So as I've always connected the, the question of pilgrimage with the problem of church today and their separation, and church today is full of tourists, not pilgrims, and that's part of the reasons why it's pathological. Uh, but I'll say more on that later. Um, it's very interesting. Um, we all know the phrase, know thyself. It's very important that this is in the context of a certain test. It's actually gymnastic. Um, it is not merely a, let me go through the propositional knowledge about myself. When Socrates is talking about know thyself, um, and we know Plato's a wrestler, et cetera, so forth, the gymnasium and so on. The phrase is, um, and, and Raymond brings us this out, we have to see it. There's a logos know, know thyself, there's an eros know thyself, and there's a thymos know thyself. And the thymos is the gymnastic. And what we have in Western civilization today is we don't, we don't have any ways to know ourselves thymotically. And really, the truth of ourselves tends to come out in stressful situations. Generally, basically, everyone's relatively nice when they're comfortable. We're relatively friendly when people don't say things we disagree with. That's not the test, though. Um, the test is what do you do when you're um, hungry, thirsty, unhappy? A way to look at fasting is submitting yourself to many tests so that when you get the big test of fasting because there's no food or something goes wrong, you're ready for it and it doesn't shatter you. We can see a lot of these kind of practices um, as like, so for example, something that is often, I think, really important to bring attention to is if you're supposed to go pray in your room with the door shut behind you, that means people may think you're an atheist because they never see you praying, right? So you submit these practices of being misrepresented so that the day when you're misrepresented on a big scale, you can handle it, right? And so there are all these other things, too, where we can see a lot of the commands of the Bible as not just being a kind of spiritual uh, propositional setup, but a certain actual test, like a pilgrimage, like fast, shut the door, be misrepresented, do these different things. But of course, the question is, why would you do that? You know, why would you do that? And it brings like, why would you go on a pilgrimage like that? Are you crazy? Like, have you lost your mind? Well, this is what's really interesting. The human does not seem as if they can be fully human unless they do things that you can only understand by doing. That entails the real risk of like giving up and therefore it being a mistake. But it's precisely because you submit yourself to that risk that is hard that cannot be understood except by doing it, that it is able to scratch some dimension of the human being, that if it goes through our entire life unscratched, we do not become fully human. And what do we do in a society that basically the only justification for human action is rational, 
if you don't have a rational justification for it, you're a fool. Why would you do it? Well, then we can't do things like pilgrimages that we seem to need to do to know thyself. And then, of course, we don't know ourselves. And so there's something about the comfort, like the rational thing, comfort, all of those kind of redirect what is rational action in a manner that contributes to our inability to fully flourish as human beings. And as to close the point, the church should be in the business of actually encouraging us to do those non-rational things that if we don't do, we're not fully human. But instead, the church actually, um, well, what it does is it tells us that we're already in a difficult situation because the world will reject you and you'll be misunderstood. Um, which is suggesting you're already on a pilgrimage, which in the West, if you're a Christian, it's probably not actually that true because you're the hegemon. <laughs> you have a lot of power. So this creates this weird pathology where rather than the church kind of helping people engage in those non-rational activities that help us be fully human like a pilgrimage, it tells us we're already on a pilgrimage. But unfortunately, what that looks like is seeking political power to stop the bad guy or interpreting our life in a certain oppressed difficulty that then doesn't require us to change anything, as opposed to sending us on a pilgrimage that would force us to change things. So I think this question of pilgrimage and the church are strongly related. I said a lot right there, but I think about this quite, quite a lot. So I really appreciate this topic. Yeah, and there was something there that I was thinking, which was that that resonate because so many people I met while I was doing it nearly nobody was doing it for religious reasons. Nearly none of them were actually Catholic or Christian. Maybe they were from Catholic or Christian families, but professed to be kind of atheistic or like vaguely spiritual in the way that Verveke described. So a lot of the older people would have been more religious, but for the younger people, it was almost like a backpacker adventure trip, um, which I thought was very interesting considering it is, you know, a pilgrimage, but there's still that hunger for like a, exactly what you said, Daniel, like a difficult experience that transforms you, that builds self-knowledge. Maybe you're at a crossroads to make a decision. And there's such a dearth of those kind of initiatory journeys in our society. That's something like that. Like there's people from Korea, there's people from Australia, there's people from South America, there's people from North America. There's people coming from all over the world to just walk this path, basically. I mean, you could go for a walk in your garden or down the street. I like the significance of it is you could see the hunger even if people couldn't actually articulate necessarily what the hunger was. Um, so, yeah, I think how do you bring that more into religious practice day to day and in your life? I mean, I think you're 100% right. That's what the church should be doing. I'm extremely concerned that basically, especially American Protestantism has created the impression that you're actually less likely to go on pilgrimages if you're saying American Protestantism because you're saved by faith, not by works. So actually, <laughs> there's an I there's it's not not only is the church not actually equipping people to go on those things, you could argue there are some theologies that are actively discouraging it. And if you think you need to go on a pilgrimage, well, you've left the community. Why are you so individualistic? There's actually a kind of discouragement that is extremely. And so, yeah, I think actually people who aren't Christian can sometimes be more likely to do, do these some sort of undertakings, just in the American context. I'm not talking about other contexts. I think I think I think what you pointed out is is a, a big problem. I'm really, uh, really glad you brought in the pilgrim tourist distinction, Ken. I don't know if I had heard it from you first or what happened, but I've been thinking about it and writing about it recently as well. And it feels very alive for me in the journey that I'm on. Um, 
living nomadically, which in this day and age is often associated with tourism. So it's become quite important for me to like actually understand the way in which what I'm doing is distinct. Um, I think there's something also about belonging um, or homing or unrooting from a sense of um, a certain quality of belonging or like the kind of quiet certainty based existence that uh, Daniel writes about and belonging again um, to be uprooted to go on a journey is to actually be heading towards a destination that you can't actually see yet you, it's not it's not yet available to you and this is really quite different from the tourist who is not seeking to be transformed um, by the experience they're seeking to basically take themselves and put themselves into different environments and to have some experiences but it's not fundamentally about i'm going to be changed by this and then there's this kind of like towardness of hmm, both a combination of like a path in faith a path a walk through life that is made different through embarking on the pilgrimage and also, I think for me, a real sense that there's a kind of community um, yearning and there's a sense of like, uh, there's some sort of experience of um, collectivity and togetherness that is not yet here, but I'm holding the space for it. And so in that way, the, the pilgrim walk for me, um, all these years I've been writing and making things as culture pilgrim, it's been very solitary journey it feels like although i found wonderful people along the way as this conversation attests to um and then at the same time there's like this yeah this like we're gonna leave that uh, brett weinstein talks about this in evolutionary terms like you leave the the valley in which you're living because you have a sense like this is not going to be a hospitable place and that's like an ontological claim about our um society like we need to uproot from where we are and go somewhere else and not just in terms of like where we are physically but ontologically sociologically going on a journey to something that's not yet here and is perhaps being realized through the course of the journey just reminds me of the meaning crisis like in the talk of like home the domicile the loss of home journeying to a new home and the pilgrimage there was something Jonathan Pajot said, which a pilgrimage is a, a physical journey that symbolizes the journey to God. So it's like you go on the physical journey in order to make concrete that more symbolic spiritual journey. It's like a microcosm of that bigger. And of course, God would be rehoming ourselves uh, after the meaning. I mean, it, that is if you believe the meaning crisis was caused by the death of God. Um, so maybe there's something there. You know, something that I've been hearing, there's this interesting distinction that you brought up, Daniel, with the pilgrimage, whether it's an enacted actual going out of your own life versus pilgrimage as your life. And I'm curious about that, right? Because there's a sense in which there's, there's a very especially in the Christian lens, there's a very deep traditional mode of thinking about our lived experience, regardless of 
how much actual distance we cover in in let's say space and time that it is a pilgrimage because we all sort of fundamentally experience ourselves as being at home but not at home in the world and and thus we're we're sort of always in in this sort of pilgrim or at least we have the opportunity maybe to be in in the world but not of the world like there's something in that idea i think that that is very there's something of the heart of a pilgrim in the be in the world but not of the world and so i'm i'm curious how like i think the actual act of going on a pilgrimage like you did man is profound and it and like you just brought out that jonathan says there's this you you can enact symbolically um in a particular instance of your life something that anchors your your greater lifelong pursuit of the good your greater lifelong finite transcendence but what about in the rest of our lives when we're not able to actually go on how do we what does it mean to maintain and continue that posture of being a pilgrim in the day-to-day mundane existence excellent um few things first before i forget there is a very real sense that the culture of tourism in the world today is a new form of barbaricism where the barbarian goes across the countryside collecting experiences collecting things and moving on that's basically what we have today great village and plunder yeah and there was an italian philosopher who made that point and also you see in emerson's self-reliance where he warns toward the end that travel can be bad for the soul there's a point where traveling becomes escapism now he also makes a point that no traveling is bad so there's all these difficult things right so there is this kind of new the reason why actually traveling can be so dangerous is because it looks so much like a pilgrimage it looks so much like a journeying and the most dangerous things in life look like the good things of life right uh that's where you have to have that active discernment but that kind of active discernment is more of a philosophical training more of a philosophical ability which if you have people not doing that then they may not be able to discern those fine differences like a way to think about philosophy which of course is a catchword that means many things to many people philosophy is not being able to answer the question but being able to discern between things that look very very similar has a lot more to do with those difficult judgments those really fine nuanced distinctions that are not self-evident um the point that is asked that is a big that's a very big deal so there's another issue in life where there's almost a point where you can't return home until you leave there becomes a certain age where in order to be able to come back home you have to be able to leave it or it becomes not really a home but a prison or something that brainwashes you and so on and so forth but once you leave it is very difficult to be- come back home or to ever find a home again actually and something that's interesting about a pilgrim is a pilgrim tends to be someone on a journey for a home right like the pilgrims go across the ocean they're looking for a home a tourist is not planning to live somewhere new or to live in a new way they're planning to kind of return and basically have photographs where they can you know collect some cultural capital or something right so the relation between pilgrimage and home is pretty profound um and there's something about paradoxical where the human needs to leave to be but then it's very easy to leave and just keep going cuz what you can also have is the kind of leaving home but the kind of i'm just going to leave cuz they're all idiots and i don't want anything to do with them kind of like just going off in a kind of r- rageful way that looks like a pilgrimage 
but actually the spirit of it isn't correct. So there's some sort of profound connection between the inner self and the outer action that makes a pilgrimage a pilgrimage and not just a going off or a um, or barbaricism in the form of new tourism, right? So this is so this is what to me I think is um, interesting because there's this question of okay, well, what about the pilgrimage of everyday life in different things? Um, clearly, a pilgrimage actually isn't even complete as a pilgrimage unless it transitions to some sort of inner space, right? Like let's put it this way. Every journey is a potential pilgrimage if it translates into inner work. But if it doesn't, what was intended to be a pilgrimage was just a journey, you could say, right? So there's a kind of, you have to stick the landing to complete it as a pilgrimage. Um, yeah. The reason why, um, I, for me, I make a distinction. Now, this is where uh, there seems to be a difference between church as pilgrimage and church and pilgrimage, which is the modern setup that then turns it into church and missions, where then the pilgrimage is external mm. to the operations of the home church. And it really does not become an incubator of pilgrimages, but the, the going out is missions. That is a spreading of the message of the home base, not a message that transforms the people in the home base and has the people in the church transformed in the process. So this is the, book. the early church. It is very difficult. Like, what is Paul doing in Acts? He's constantly what? On a freaking pilgrimage, basically. <laughs> He's traveling everywhere. The early, like the metaphors that would describe the early church, and I'll pass it on because, but because there's so much. Um, metaphors that would describe the early church would be something more like traveler, alien, immigrant, undercover agent. These are the kind of metaphors that would describe early Christians. What about today? Um, community man, um, rooted, a family man taking care of the family. You have this movement to language that is very more stationary, right? Is what kind of defines the Christian. Now, that, I'm not saying that's bad, but you've had a kind of metaphoric shift that then suggests a potential danger. And in that shift, what has occurred is church as pilgrimage, because basically the early church and pilgrimage were very connected together so the inner and the outer work were very strongly put together where today it's more like church and pilgrimage but the and turns the pilgrimage especially in first world comfort into missions now it's church and missions and then there's this kind of slip, split between the inner and outer work that creates a bunch of problems because then the people in the church are like oh we're doing the inner work because we're financing the, we're, we're doing the outer work because we're financing the people that are doing the outer work. And we as a body are doing both. But the problem is the functions of that body are split among the members. So you don't have that transformation occurring. And then in each individual member, and then unfortunately, a lot of the missionary people, it's more like tourism, not to be mean, but very often it is more like a an adventure that's not necessarily bad. I mean, we went down and built houses after Katrina. I mean, it's not inherently bad, but it may not have the same quality of, of pilgrimage. So there's been this historical shift that I think has led to various problems. There's more to say, but I'm going to pause right there and I'd be curious what is some thoughts. One of the things that stuck out to me there from a personal standpoint, like this notion of leaving home as ne as a necessity is very much where I find myself in relation to Christianity. Like, it's not as if I, I, 
I'm, <clears throat> I didn't leave Christianity to the degree that I've left it. I don't know how that, how I feel about that, but to the degree that I've left, it, I didn't leave it out of spitefulness, but I left it out of this sense of, you know, as, as you were talking there about the, the home base as sort of having the answers that need to be shared to the world, as opposed to a home base being a place from whence pilgrims go out to be, to be shaped and to shape, right? This is sort of the difference between, you know, niche construction as a way of moving into the world versus an imposition of a, an already already revealed truth or something like that. And so, like, I'm thinking about how to, yeah, like, what what does it look like to return? in a way that in a way that makes of like you know my whole my my whole youtube channel the climbing on mount sophia right it's very much like pilgrimage is deep in that notion for me hmm. as this like it's this pilgrimage towards wisdom that, that's never ending and that is something like that is that's core to my soul and christianity is is always there for me in that but this sense of the church as being a home from whence pilgrimages can happen rather than uh, a fortress from whence you know conquest and mission is accomplished like that 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 feels important to me i think does it have something to do with like the beatific vision in a sense that you can't get sitting around like it requires leaving the home base into the wilderness to the unknown to have that experience of the truly transcendent because that that was what came to me like the most interesting things i found were th there weren't like physical things that were, were going on but they were my relationships to them they were dreams that i was having that i was writing down they were things that i was imagining and picturing and i was listening to the new testament as i was going and kind of building more of a relationship to Jesus and to Christianity than I'd ever done before. But that that wasn't the physical journey in a way, but I needed the physical journey to actually do that um, or to mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. get into it. So I wonder, is it like that kind of, it's almost like the hero leaving the home to go into the wilderness to bring back stuff that for the whole community, in a sense, if you get that mm -hmm. insight, you know, it it's shared with everybody mm -hmm. else. I just, I think that's very beautiful. Mm -hmm. hear about um, more of the, the inner world of the journey that you went on. And that does seem to me to be the most important part. And uh, even just the up, the, the changing of one's immediate surroundings can be sufficient to just cause like a deep swell in the unconscious and like for things to move and things to kind of come up from the surface in dreams and so on. So that's really interesting and also wonderful. Ken, I, I hadn't clocked for some reason that just this very clear pilgrimage connection and climbing Mount Sophia, but clearly here we've Mahon has just been on his physical pilgrimage. We have culture pilgrim and we have climbing Mount Sophia, which is so visibly about embarking on that walking journey. Uh, one thing that's coming for me in response to like how, 
how can we undergo pilgrimage without leaving our physical locale is really drawing on my own experience of, I suppose, the, the beginnings of my pilgrimage before finding Christianity was a pilgrimage into exploring consciousness and exploring different domains of experience through psychedelics. One of the biggest um, kind of visionary voices in that space, Terence McKenna, would often talk about how the shaman's role was kind of to journey out of the known world into the spirit world or into the underworld and to bring back insights that would come through song or through art or what have you that would then be nourishing to the community. So in a way, the proliferation of um, medicine work, medicine ceremonies, which is everywhere in Berlin right now, I have to say it's it's all sound healings, cacao ceremonies, plant medicine ceremonies. This stuff is really on the spread. And what it seems to offer is, a, is an example of a kind of pilgrimage portal where you can go on that journey and it's going to stir and move things so that even though you're resting in place so to speak um that movement is going on within you and you are going to have to kind of renegotiate and recouple yourself with your surrounding environment as you change um yeah so there's a kind of yeah there's a way in which it doesn't have to be physical yeah this is this is i think a really good dimension to bring in here jacob because you're right like this this psychedelic renaissance is huge here and the distinction between between pilgrim and tourist is essential because one of the things about the pilgrim too is that the, the pilgrim's not interested in in staying away from home right they're trying to be transformed to come into right relation with what's what is more real than what's been available to them so far such that home can actually become more real such that home can be built up and and that groundedness and there's two things here that i want to draw together because when, when mahan when you were talking about your the net the the embodied suffering of this walk as being transformative in your relation to christ to jesus to the new testament to to christianity right to to wrestle with all these things and then jacob as you're talking about you know the the journey in the in the in the psychedelic space the journey that that doesn't involve your body moving right <laughs> for, for me whenever i've done psychedelic journeys my body doesn't move at all right like i i lay down and i do not move for five hours but man i it's a it's a real pilgrimage um and so i'm like pulling those two things together and i know there's some people doing some really great work in this space but trying to bring those two things together where it's like yes we can we can do psychedelic journeys but let's not forget to land them at the end like daniel talked about earlier like it needs to land in your body it needs to land in your home in a way that is that is a real transformation and your body can go on a pilgrimage and and like if we can get these two things talking to each other and and moving together like that might give us the sort of pilgrimage transformation that we're really needing could you just clarify again what the two the two things are yeah the pilgrimage in the the psychonaut pilgrimage mm -hmm. to use a term 
and the the ancient form of pilgrimage of walking the path with your physical body. That is an awesome point, Ken. It really dovetails with my experience of it as well, because I actually did some psychedelics during it as well. I did some microdosing of mushrooms, so I had some interesting experiences with that. But again, like a psychedelic voyage is a pilgrimage in a sense, but it's also missing that dull, difficult, mundane, like really like I kept thinking about like, okay, St. James did this journey. Like he had nothing, like there was no restaurants, there was no food places, like he wasn't getting coffee, he was probably sleeping on rocks. Like there is that aspect of the gratitude that comes from immense suffering that can be hard to get from a purely psychedelic experience, I think. Maybe from something like fasting or something that requires that, uh, I don't know, I think if you change your conscious. I, I'm a big fan of changing your con your consciousness with chemicals, but there's a bit of a it's the chemical that's doing the heavy lifting in a sense. So yeah, I think there's that some can be the danger there for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's prone to exploitation by tourism, though yeah. certainly not like as someone who is very much interested in trying to integrate these in a healthy way. I want to point that out while at the same time pointing out that absolutely does not mean they should not be utilized or like they, they provide us with profound opportunity. Excellent. Um, the better something is, the more prone it is to become its counterfeit. The very fact that psychedelics can have that profound impact is precisely why it can be um, it, it can become a source of tourism. It's precisely because traveling to a different culture and seeing new things is so amazing that it can turn into a drug. Right. Uh, you know, uh, the, the line between drug and medicine can be thin sometimes, just like the line between pilgrimage and journey. Um, there is always something about a pilgrimage that requires a relation to an unknown. So before the entire world was mapped out, if you just got on a ship like the pilgrims did and you didn't know what was across the ocean, then it was a journey. It was you could say back then before the whole world was basically mapped out, there was a higher probability that a given example of traveling was also a pilgrimage because there was an unknown in relation to it. Right. You couldn't just say, I'm going to consume this. Like if you uh, go to China, you've probably seen pictures of China before you go. Right. So it's less of an unknown. As you move into the modern world, I think uh, Michelle Proust put it very well in Remembrance of Lost Time, where he said, life today is not so much about a journey to a destination, but the kindling of new eyes, and that this is the mm. unknown that the modern man has to engage in. And so pilgrimage today, pilgrimage always, I think, relates to an unknown somehow. So if you don't have any mystery, beauty, truth, goodness, etc., you can't even have pilgrimage, <laughs> basically just traveling or journeying. And one of the reasons why difficulty tends to resonate with the unknown is because you don't know if you're going to be able to get through this, right? It's unknown. And then it turns out, wait, I did have the capacity. So difficulty can create an unknown. Um, something like psychedelics, new horizons can create an unknown. But there is something, if there's something about the pilgrimage that is necessary for the human to be human, then the only way for humans to be human is to have a relation of the unknown. And we have to look for all of the resources that can provide this. Um, 
on the question of the connection between like the the inner home that was brought up like staying in place pilgrimage simone bay uh was you know she was big on roots she talked about without roots humans die and then she drew a lot of attention to her concept of attention which is the ability to really see what is going on in front of you well that would align with mr proust like the ability to go oh my gosh i'm actually seeing the person there i'm turning the stranger into a neighbor into maybe not a mere mortal like the end of weight of glory right so you're in the same place but because of a way of seeing you can turn the same place into a different place now what's interesting is there is something about human beings that with time things turn into something else and um what i mean by that is home what is home as a child gradually and slowly turns into just a house uh a marriage a love passion gradually just turns into a grind there's this kind of entropy that seems to define human life with time right um difficulty seems to be the medicine for entropy and the unknown seems to be the medicine for entropy when you are able to go on a pilgrimage the home that was slipping into a mere house or apartment can then suddenly become a home again because you have gained a certain way to experience it that brings it back to the um back to its full self right now what's interesting is this is what I'll get into when the you could argue like the major message of the bible or the gospel is that all things are new this is quite strange because all things would include the things you're looking at like that's part of all things and it's new so the message of the gospel seems to scream some sort of new way of seeing right like in psychedelics suddenly the room is oh my gosh right <laughs> like it's something new right and so there's something about the christian journey that is fundamentally about the capacity to experience life as new this now i'll i'll close my point here mm -hmm. there's more to say is the the funny thing about the end of the bible when god is on revelation he's saying you know i'm making all things new these words are trustworthy and true imagine that being like someone just said jesus is alive what do they do the the tomb is empty they rush out they're so like well i got to see it for myself right that's a model of what the church should actually be when you go to church on sunday you are told all things are new and you just want to run back home to see it new then because you were just told that the world is infused with a light and wonder you didn't know about missions is a kind of oh my gosh we got to spread the gospel because the evil ones are out there and we got to be it's kind of a militaristic metaphor and there's more to be said basically the church now functions as your weekly checkup to make sure you're not going astray it's to make sure like what do we do it's like a surveillance state did you go to church this week oh mm yes you're slipping there's kind of a surveillance state kind of structure to it right and it's also linked with our concept of the sabbath being on one day a week and you're supposed to go in and do the rest thing. Now Paul makes it quite clear that the Sabbath has actually expanded to every day of the week. That's why he doesn't want to have them because they're like you can pull the ox out because the Sabbath is supposed to mark when God shows up or God did show up. So we should be living the Sabbath all the time. And then the way Paul describes living the Sabbath is as going on a pilgrimage, as going on a journey to see how all things are new all the time. And the Sabbath in being expanded to all days of the week is actually the invitation to participate in what God is doing to so have that kindling of new eyes in your immediacy the horror is when the church is restricted to sunday one day of the week it's basically suggesting we are not in the age yet of kindling new eyes right well this leads to a very um strange relationship then you're just trying to maintain the military base you're just trying to maintain the outpost uh in this world that you're in that you're not of 
but it is not a place of inspiration. So then you got to make sure all the troops have the right dogma, all the right ideas. So when the enemy shows up, we can tell them the gospel and tell them the truth and we're not in trouble. That metaphor then does not lead to a place where you go in and they're declaring all things are new and you're so stunned by this message of beauty, truth, and goodness that you can't help but run out into the world to see all things is now. Instead, from a military metaphor, you go out into the world ready for battle, ready for fear, ready to be rejected. There's not really much room for the cultivation of new eyes because while you're busy doing that, the bad guys just took over the White House. The bad guys just came into your office, right? So you can't have this cultivation of new eyes. But imagine, again, if the church was a place that had messages such as all things are new, and then you just couldn't help but run out and see the world according to that newness. That's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be the inspiration of the pilgrimage that you are a part of right now, but it cannot do that in its current state if it's if it's metaphorically a military operation for you to be equipped to defend yourself. In fact, the things that you can see are a threat they're dangerous, as opposed to something that would inspire you to see everything according to this new quality. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to catch this thread um, and then spin it in reverse. So first and foremost, really appreciate this depthful articulation of the distinction between going out in a mission mode of the Christian missionary or in Islam, one of the five pillars, Dawah, to go out to preach, to spread the message, to spread the good news. Um, and something which is more like a listening, something which is more like a going out into the unknown to meet with the unknown and therefore, in a sense, to become unknown also. And this is what I found most moving in what you were saying, because it connects very deeply with my personal experience of the last few years is like a progressive invitation of more uncertainty and how to mm. stand in that. And that turns out to be a kind of socially transgressive um, position to hold, which requires a degree of conviction or courage or, or being willing to be an outsider, even in the home base, to not have a plan, to not know what it is you're doing or precisely what it's pointing to and to leave room for God fundamentally um, is what meant, but what's meant by this. And I've been part of a, community called Uncertainment, Uncertainment for the last several years in which we gather on that theme regularly. And for me, that is where coming out of the psychedelic experience into the world, this is where the psychedelic experience and the relationship to God gets fulfilled. It's like bringing in the veil of the unknown closer and then letting God be revealed through these unknown circumstances, meetings with new people, serendipities, and so on. Um, and if we plan our lives too much, then what we're actually doing is removing the space for God to operate and kind of erecting like we're going to like paint the paint the highway lines all the way down the track, all the way to um, the grave, like we're trying to eliminate the space for the unknown to move, ergo for God to move. Uh, and ergo for us to like get somewhere we didn't end up so yeah so much more to be said but i want to leave it there well i mean i'll just say that you can't talk about truth beauty and goodness without them being unknown because then otherwise they're just your take on truth beauty and goodness and finite like 
resurrection is fundamentally an unknown unfolding. Like it, like unknown is at the complete heart of the gospel because unknown is whatever God is doing that is worth honoring and cultivating and being in the presence of cannot be known ahead of time because if it was, it wouldn't be really God's doing now, would it? And it would fall within a rational calculus. Like another way to look at this, like instead of people asking, like Christians asking one another, did you go to church this week in a kind of surveillance state? It really should be, how did you experience resurrection this week? How did you experience the unknown breaking through this week? What an inspiring and exciting thing. You would be thrilled to talk with other Christians because what's kind of happened, basically, a lot of Christians are finding the liminal web spaces, a group of people that are all collected by shared individual journeys of unknowns. And we share our testaments of those ways that this newness is unfolding to us. And so that's a place where church as pilgrimage is being emulated is basically on these liminal web spaces is church as pilgrimage. Whereas the church that is the communal center that you go to that is in a building should also do that. But because of a certain paradigm, it's become church and pilgrimage, which then becomes church and missions. And so then the church becomes the place you visit to get your weekly checkup as opposed to a place to share. And what you have is when you have church as pilgrimage, which is then church as relating to unknown, because all pilgrimage is in relation to unknown, then we get together and talk about the ways we saw resurrection this week. Wow, that's really cool. And let's talk about actually how you read that book that helps you see new resurrection in a new way. Oh, that's really wild. Instead of books being something we're scared about, everything then joins the concert of how we all come to see and experience resurrection in new ways. And so the unknown is then a gift. Marcis Blondel in action made this really important point. He said, you know what the problem is with like knowing something is that you stop caring about it. Once you know how that doorknob works, do you think about it anymore? You know, once you know, this is the irony. We seek certainty. Like <laughs> we're all taught to seek circuit. The school system teaches you that you know something when you gain certainty about it. Certainty is the condition when you stop caring. So we are literally training people to associate understanding with that which ceases to make them care anymore. What is unknown is that of which has the possibility of being a source of life. And so the unknown, which we've kind of been trained to associate with spooky, scary, and dumb, actually, like it's unknown because you're not rational enough. If you were really rational, it wouldn't be unknown. No, the, the unknown is the birthplace of care. The unknown is the birthplace. And then a church that was centered on that would then be a place of care and you would feel cared for and you would feel like you could participate in that care. And it wouldn't right now, a lot of people, in my opinion, a lot of Christians who have kind of reached that place where church is pilgrimage, like they're together, then go to a church in their town and feel a certain alienation. But actually in a funny way, that very, very alienation then speaks to what Paul is actually talking about. You'll be in the world, but not understood. You won't be known. And yet, because of the superstructure of the current church, that feeling means you're in the wrong, as opposed to you've reached the third step in this kind of journey where you go start in a home base, then you go on a pilgrimage, and the last base is home base as pilgrimage, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. that step then would require a macro framework to sort of change. And that gets us into some other things. So there's this third leg that um, is really, I think, critical anyway. We're going to have to do another one. Okay. I agree. <laughs> well, it's something that I, I mean, Socrates plays a lot here, right? And I think of, you know, the un the unknowing of the Christian mystics. I've been reading this book 
um, Zen and the Birds of Appetite by it's Thomas Merton and and it's a sort of a compilation of Thomas Merton and D.T. Suzuki's um, relationship and correspondence in this this place where Zen and Christian mysticism come together, which for D.T. Suzuki is a lot about the the life and work and ideas of Meister Eckhart. And all of this comes down to the the knowing of unknowing. Right. And that's that's really the 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 ultimate place that every pilgrimage is oriented towards in in a sort of nested hierarchical goal. You're, the, the, the real telos of pilgrimage as such is to join in the inner life of God. And and that is the knowing of unknowing. Like that that is that place where where even um DT Suzuki talks about this this realization not that the self has become fully emptied but that the self is realized to have never existed at all right. and you know this sort of radical unknowing that comes over time with an with an ongoing pilgrimage into the unknown such that such that your your very life becomes one becomes one experience of acceptance and joy of encountering that which you do not know such that what is behind and internal to you becomes unknown and what is external to you becomes unknown but not in a way that is overwhelming but rather in a way that is endlessly inviting that is endlessly endlessly sacred right sacred in in the vervakian sense of of a an infinite well of intelligibility that was 100 percent what was coming up for me there ken as you were speaking was that that notion of the inexhaustible font of intelligibility and sacredness and not not trying to use it all up by knowing all of it and categorizing all of it and saying like oh everything's I've stuck it all into boxes so I'm safe and everything's okay. Actually learning to love that there's mystery and there's more mystery and there's more mystery and that that's like the ultimate way to see the world like that. If you can fall in love with that mystery, you're you're going to be okay. Like that's going to be that's going to feel pretty good because there's going to be a lot of it. And so yeah, that that idea of new eyes that Daniel was talking about for me that really seems to be you know where you can make that connection. Um, that that's the fruit of pilgrimage, maybe. This is well, such, um, um, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I really feel like we've we've gathered onto something very beautiful and evocative for me um, with these last few threads. And as I was listening to to Daniel and kind of picturing, like you know, this church uh, where we we really are invited to see with new eyes. I was thinking about an experiment that Timothy Leary did at Harvard back in the day, um, in which he actually gave people psilocybin during a church ceremony. And uh, many of them had profound experiences. One of them ran out all over campus and tried to like tell the dean of the college that uh, the kingdom of heaven was near or something like this. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because... People listened. 
<laughs> it's dangerous. What Daniel's describing is dangerous. Um, dangerous to those institutions, but also dangerous to us as people because um, we don't know how to play together as adults. Like that's what I'm realizing when we get into yeah. these places where more of this fixed structure of like, we're going to do the same thing every week. As soon as we start to take some of that away and bring the unknown in, all of that like unsafety, childhood shit, like all of it, like we have to be able to play together. Um, and there's something in the course of this whole dialogue and the course of my journey increasingly being on this nomadic pilgrimage is that the stress of the conditions that we create by embarking on this journey are the precise conditions which demand faith in um, in proportion to that. And it's precisely that quality of faith for me that is like the hand that I need holding my hand as I, I walk into whatever that thing is that is the unsafe unknown that God is calling me towards. And that could be very different things for different people, but there's... Um, there's a kind of courageous walk into the unknown and there's like a tender sense of like, I am held by God. I am like the great mother, however we want to relate to this, a sense of um, it's all going to be okayness that affords that like step into Excellent. Um, one of the most consequential conflations, perhaps in the English language, is conflation of know and love. Uh, it's been a disaster. When we say, oh, if I love you, I know you. Uh, so there's no mystery. When the Bible uses the language of no, it tends to be intercourse, sex, like you knew someone, so you had sex with them. And sex is an act of being with someone in a mystery. It points beyond itself towards something. But what we did is we took no to mean love, and therefore love is not an honoring of the unfolding of a mystery, but a knowing someone according to a rational calculus. And that doesn't tend to be very good for happiness. We should do everything in our power to remove the conflations of the word love and no, uh, because we should only use the term no in a love context if it's a with them in a mystery. I, you, it seems, the Bible almost suggests that you know someone when you're with them in the presence of mystery, because you know that they don't know this thing either, but you're in it together. And I know, and I know you because I know you're hand in hand with me toward this mystery, right? Like you were speaking of the church in that way very important you know the veil is torn when jesus dies right like the holy of holies all of these different things let us not forget that the holy of holies the ark of the covenant man you touch that thing you die you go in there and you don't cover your face you could get destroyed that whole strange spirit of like beauty wonder worse worshiping danger weirdness has been unleashed upon the world basically uh and that like how would church feel if it was like hey we got to figure out how to live in a world with this spiritual force that seems to be a mixture of beauty, death, goodness, hope, and all of these different things. We forget that the Holy Spirit would still have the same characteristics as the Ark of the Covenant, going into the temple where they have to bow their head, only one person can go. That force, 
that is a combination of mystery, power, reverence, fear, wonder, that is the Holy Spirit, not merely this I love you feeling, which then, worse yet, love equals no, so Holy Spirit is how I know people according to a rational calculus. Oh, okay. Uh, no wonder then the church becomes just a certain ordering and keeping out the unknown, because if the church is supposed to be a place of love, Love means you know something, someone, and the spirit we're supposed to cultivate is a spirit of love which equals no one another, then the church is a place where there's no mystery at all. In fact, the presence of mystery would be hatred, right? Because love equals no. And so if there's any unknown in the church, it would be an evidence of a failure of the church. Lo and behold, Ivan Illich was correct then that the Christian church, which was for him the best of things, had become the worst of things because only the best of things can become the worst of things following the inversion principle for Ivan Illich, right? So when you have a place that is supposed to be honoring this mystery, that then because of some fallacies ends up in the destruction of mystery, then it can become very pathological in different ways. And I'm afraid that's currently what you have. And the, th the thing with it, I would say, is a way to think about the difference also between the pilgrim and the journey is like the journey or the traveling is the go to where a pilgrimage is go and see. Like a pilgrimage is always a go and see. The temple, <laughs> the freaking stone is rolling away. Go and see. Leave this church. Go and see how all things are being new. Go and see how resurrection is occurring. Do it at your workplace. Do it in China. Do it. in Yeah, you can travel. Go do that. But wherever you go, you must see. The pilgrimage can never be separated from the act of seeing. You are go, go and see, not merely go to. So if you go somewhere, but you don't learn how to see following attention by Simone Bay, you haven't, you haven't engaged in a pilgrimage at all. You know, why is difficulty seem to be part of pilgrimage? Because when you encounter difficulty, you go and see if you can handle it. And then you see the world quite differently, according to the things that you have gained through that training, through the martial arts. I did wrestling, long distance journey. Like it changes the quality by which you experience reality, right? For one, it makes you more confident. And it's very hard to see the world if you're afraid, right? Like what Jesus is obsessed with current. Like he's like, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Hard not to be afraid, though, if you've never been on a difficult pilgrimage, because you probably should be afraid because you don't know if you can handle things. But when you go on journeys that are difficult, it's easier not to be afraid, and courage and sight are strongly connected. Your ability to see and your ability not to be afraid are strongly connected. And if you're afraid, how are you ever going to deal with the unknown? This is the issue. Like, if you can only go on pilgrimage, if you're connected with the unknown, but you're a, but you got to have courage. And so courage becomes some sort of precondition for the possibility of having a relation to the unknown, and therefore only a courageous church could be a place that could house this kind of relationship with the unknown that would bring to the forefront the living spirit by which we could be inspired to see all things as new. So I think separating love and, and knowing would be a good start. There's something there. I don't, this might open up another thread uh, that'll completely derail us, but this idea of, I don't know what if it was, um, it was after Augustine, but the idea in the church that God is, incomprehensible and unintelligible which became church dogma which is still church dogma as far as i'm aware but prior to that god was incomprehensible but not unintelligible exactly yes Very, so yeah. you could journey to see god in a sense but if god is unintelligible there's no point in doing anything because you can't like you know it's you're it 
that vision isn't possible for you. So I think to have that pilgrimage mechanism, God has to be intelligible. There has to be, the faith has to lead to vision, the beatific vision. So you undertake the difficult journey to be able to see, to to have that relationship with God. I mean, vision is a metaphor for understanding. So an understanding of God has to be possible to precondition this journey. And I think in church dogma, as far as I'm aware in the Nicene Creed, that's not actually there at the moment. So that seems to be a conflict. Oh, so, yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to hear more about that because that's not something I've come across because, yeah, that definitely destroys the whole the whole enterprise. If God is unintelligible, then the whole thing is... Yeah, because Augustine, as far as I understand, ran afoul of it because he initially had the idea that a lot of his was was about this idea of a journey that we're all spiritual refugees searching for home and we find that home in God. So, but it's, right. it's Arre- like, Platonism, like until they find recently. Yeah. Like it has, you have to understand the good in a sense. You have to understand God yeah, yeah, to have this yeah. relationship with it. But, um, as far as I'm aware, after the Nicene Creed, that was a problem for him. Like he couldn't say that mm. anymore. Um, maybe that's been changed. I don't know. But as far I have read some stuff in terms of church doctrine that says that God is incomprehensible and unintelligible. And I know there's certain strands of, say, yeah, Protestantism that would interrupt that yeah. mystical ascension to God. Um, but yeah, yeah, that that seems to be a problem with the church that would be interrupting um, approaching it because it has to be possible for you to actually, you know, try and do it. Yeah, if if that if 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 you try to maintain that position, you necessarily end up in atheism. You have to. Atheism is the only proper response of an intelligent being to a god that is unintelligible. Just by, like, de facto, it has to be. Because if God is unintelligible and we are intelligent, then he's not God. So that doctrine um, arose in response to the fear of heresy, that people would start coming up with their own ideas and it would collapse the church. So out of fear, there was then a movement from simple incomprehensibility to unintelligibility. And incomprehensibility then moved from full, like he was incomprehensible in the sense of fully knowable, then became at all. So then you would have a church that you knew could stay together because you wouldn't have to worry about the Gnostic controversies that then with Athanasia, although they had this trouble of like, well, how do we decide which books of the Bible are the actual books versus Gnostic and different things? And they were concerned about a resurgence of these different things uh, occurring. Um, But whenever the church does something out of fear, it tends to have a lot of unintentional consequences. Uh, And as a result, too, basically that debate can be summed up by the debate between Colbert and Aquinas on the analogy of being. And what God, you know, what Colbert warned is like there's this idea. It also is a result of trying to fit God of uh, Judaism and Christianity into Greek categories uh, where you're trying to say, okay, God is transcendent. Well, what is transcendent? is unintelligible or else it's not transcendent. And so us actually saying that God is unintelligible somehow honors and magnifies God's glory actually, because he is beyond human conceptibility. Well, the category of knowing God is more incarnational, actually, not utterly transcendent according. Now, I know that the actual Greek thinking, the original thinking is much more nuanced and true, but the problem is history is often written by the bad interpretations, uh, you know, that then there's all this work of having to go back. So what you then had is a kind of notion that unintelligibility would magnify God, actually. But that's not what Jesus said. 
you know, Jesus does not tell us, you know, this kind of notions. He's more incarnational and the spirit is alive in you. And you have this kind of double participational language that is going on. And so, but what ends up happening is like, well, Carbart is like, and, you know, and because when he's, a, when he's attacking the analogy of being, and the analogy of being is kind of the idea that when I say God is good, good, even when I say it as a finite being, has something to do with the goodness of God. Now, it may be infinitely less than what the word means, but it has to at least have 1%, you know, 1% of something to do with what God means in his goodness, because otherwise, why not just say God is cat? or God is random color, or God is XX square, right? You know, if language has no connection at all in its descriptive power, then what God is, then what in the world are we even getting at, right? Um, well, someone like Paul Barth. jump on this? Please, please. Yeah, I really appreciate this, like, giving the historical context of it. Um, but I want to just completely reject the notion that God is unintelligible uh, based on first-hand experience, I think there's absolutely a, a ratio religio and a possibility of um, greater conformity. I think prayer, true prayer, is a direct testament to intelligibility. Uh, it's it's an enactment of a possibility of calibration with God that has very direct feedback on our experience. Um so no appeal to scriptural authority on that one, but um, I want to stand in that. And I also like kind of a meta observation on the course of this conversation, because we've spoken so much to the, the nature of the ch church and like, what is it that we're doing in relationship to church here? Um, should we be trying to go back to that? Are we trying to go beyond it and so on? Like in the course of this conversation, and I really feel like the depth of locality from you, Daniel, like in relation to the church, like when you're talking about it, I really feel like this is something that's happening down the street that you're in relation to. It's not uh, a conceptual experience. But in the context of this dialogue on pilgrimage, I, I also feel like in some way, um, hmm. There's like a sense that the space of the conversation really extends quite a lot, like beyond the dialogue around relationship to church. Or like that in some ways we're getting like eddied around, like going back to what's the church's position on this, um, where this like in some way can simply be an invitation to like, this is this notion of pilgrimage is something that's available to all um and can be it can be spoken of from that standpoint like there's a kind of space of offering this mm, journey in this conversation which has a lot less conceptual boundaries and edges within it and it's, it's simply about the the journey of life coming back to 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 source coming back into relationship to god uh and so i want to um make sure that the exploration actually feels like it's bringing me closer to god and not simply into a more well postured understanding of my difference with the church mm -hmm. it's a 
it's like a way of pilgrimage versus tourist is a is a distinction of a way of being that goes to the bottom of your moment to moment lived existence. Well, basically, church is a pilgrimage, or it's not even church. Like that, that's the main kind of take is that what has happened today is there is a separation between church and pilgrimage. And actually, if you go on a pilgrimage, you're trying to be saved by works and that's unholy. Like the main kind of idea that has happened in Protestantism is like, um, because unintelligibility is holier, like to believe God is unintelligible is holier actually. Well, then it's holier not to go on a pilgrimage and it's holier not to do philosophy. And it's holier not to be engaged in dialogos community. And if you ask deep questions, you're actually a bad Christian. So what you end up happening is you have a historical narrative that is developed that has actually made the church antithetical, like against the very things that we are describing, where if you do them, you're actually kind of made to feel as if you're a bad Christian when really looking historically, it's the exact opposite, actually. Like when you go to Paul in different things, the church was a pilgrimage movement and now they have been separated, which is caused to all sorts of feelings of picking one or the other. And that has led to, I think, a very pathological church, actually. Because, like, for example, when Paul is saying, you know, you're going to be rejected, um, you're going to, you know, people aren't going to understand you. Well, that makes a whole lot of sense if you're a pilgrim and you're going into, like, as an immigrant or an alien into a foreign country, right? But what do you do when, like, you live in America where the predominant culture is Christian? Well... You're like, well, I'm not actually rejected at work for being a Christian. So what you end up having to do is emphasizing the, the narrative of the church to feel like Paul wasn't wrong, then has to somehow turn Christians into victims of some sort of political class, some sort of college class. Like there's all these forces that you're actually being oppressed by that you, by just being a middle class American, thus you are actually on a pilgrimage because you're going to work in the face of all of these difficulties, right? No need to do anything extra. You're actually already there just by being Christian in a Western society. So you have these conceptions of what a pilgrimage is that have been counterfeit by the notion of church that once you deconstruct them, then you can see that the only way to be Christian involves a pilgrimage in the way that we are describing. Uh, which in Paul's day, church and pilgrimages were two sides of the same coin because you were going into foreign countries. You were traveling and the church was people gathering together to see where did your pilgrimage take you? Where have you been thinking about? What resurrection did you see? Like we gather here on the Dialogos to talk about the things that we've been going through, right? Well, that's church because that is people on Mount Sophia who have been climbing, coming together to say, what paths did you take? Which ways did you go? Church is to be helping aid the mapping and the carrying out of the pilgrimage. And basically the, the point of this would also mean is that you could in a sense be going more so to church by never going to American church if you're going on a pilgrimage. <laughs> and there would actually be a historical basis for that claim, um, which to us is very hard to think now because that would mean that being Christian has something to do with journeying into the unknown. We associate love with knowledge. And as a result, it feels like it's loving not to do those things that we need to be actually to engage and participate in a world where all things are new. No, it's really helpful, actually, kind of integration of, of what I was reflecting. And I just kind of brings me back to the sense that like church is uh church is where i'm experiencing most connectedness to god 
in the presence of communitas. I think I want to offer that as a as a kind of <laughs> a, a distilled rendering. Um, I also wondered, Ken, if if there was more that you wanted to say about this idea that it's kind of uh, somehow underneath Christianity, even perhaps what we're talking about. And um, yeah, also Mahon, uh, any reflections that come for you as we approach sort of the, the half hour mark? Yeah, I would say, uh, yeah, probably my closing remark and, and sense would be, first of all, thank you all. This is wonderful. This is lovely. I, I have, I think, taken on pilgrimage as an existential mode. I think it's fundamental to the notion of love. Um, I think it's another way of saying um, love as a as as a way of being. Um, and as I referred to climbing Mount Sophia, that's that's part of that for me. But for me, it's it's everything. It's every encounter with myself um, internally, with reality externally, with others, with ideas with God, with transcendence, um, having the posture of this sort of wrestling with niche construction, I change it and it changes me with every level of my, of, of being in the world, physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, relationally, every moment of attention is this give and take this shaping and being shaped never a simply an imposition or simply a reception but always but always a wrestling with always a moving always a changing always a transformation um that sense i mean i think that's that's that sense of being at the um at the boundary line of, of meaning making the boundary line of chaos and order at the boundary line of that. And I think that's what the pilg pilgrimage is the lived experience of meaning. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Um, it actually made me think that something that really disappointed me about the pilgrimage that I did was that it didn't feel that different to what I do all the time anyway, aside from the massive amount of walking that was involved, because I'm always trying to have those insights. I'm always considering spiritual things. I'm always trying to have those new eyes, trying to kind of see into the mystery more deeply. And I thought that was initially a negative thing. But just hearing you speak there, Ken, was like, that just reaffirms that I'm that that pilgrimage is everywhere. It's a pilgrimage as a way of life that you can really imbibe and really for me is what philosophy is about the love of wisdom and and also that that scales up to the the love of god which is the i think part of that is that pursuit of truth um something that might be missing from the institutional version but um for me that feels really meaningful and really like um connects me to the transcendent in a way that you know has done so much good for me and I think could do so much good for a lot of other young meaning crisis people in the current state of affairs. 
So yeah, thank you very much for this dialogue. Like this is really, I feel like I've been on a pilgrimage. This is this is good stuff. <laughs> yes, I feel the dialogue is getting more beautiful the more we develop it as well. Like I, I definitely have that sense as we close out today. Like each of us is getting sort of closer to speaking the most beautiful speech. And um, I was thinking just before this dialogue that that's what that's what prayer is and that's why it's so devastating that we're, we've lost prayer is that prayer is actually the place where we should have the most beautiful good and true speech um so yeah any any further reflections for you daniel very welcome as well well i just want to say that i really enjoy speaking with all of you and uh, it it when paul's writing none of the christians would have grown up in church like home pilgrimage church would have been the order what's made church so hard to understand is that we grow up with church and so church then is that place you grow up with and the function of church then reflects a place for families to grow up with but like in the early church most people would have been something like home then pilgrimage and then church actually and church would have been the shared spirit like this is what's tricky now is church is something we kind of grow up with. So when we talk about going back to church, there's a regressive feel to it because it's like, well, I grew out of that. Right. And you see, that really wouldn't have been a thought that would have been as much of a problem back then because most people wouldn't have grown up with church and church. You know what you'll see in Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, those like um, uh, uh, Nicholas Berjaev, Bukokov, Lamb of God, you know, they'll emphasis the Sophia as this wisdom and what's very interesting about sophia i think it's lamb of god where bukalkov talks about this question of we need to think of god when we say first calls there's a mistake because it's actually because then you have all the predestination stuff and what he's like sophia is the continual presence of the creative act of god in every moment of time amidst us with the presence of the spirit so then church becomes sophia in a very profound way. And then it's like, oh, the bride of God, I get it. Sophia, Psalms, Lady Wisdom, and so on and so forth. And so if if, if one, we can kind of understand, okay, one of the reasons I culturally associate church with like going home and being a kid is because you grew up with church, but that's not what Paul could have meant when he talked about church, <laughs> because that wouldn't have been what it was. Okay. And church seems to be something that is a result of people on a shared pilgrimage because they're going and sharing the gospel and going to different communities. Oh, okay. Church has something to do with brothers and sisters on a pilgrimage that are honoring a shared Sophia, continual creative act in that presence. And so then church are the conditions of keeping alive Sophia. And of course, Sophia's love of wisdom, but Sophia is also the bride of God, which is like the cultivation of wisdom. But then if you can only know yourself by going through difficulty and trials, loving wisdom requires what? Difficulty. It requires going on journey. You can't actually love wisdom unless you go through the trials, right? So then Lady Sophia, in this sense, is a lady that also inspires us to rise to the occasions of trials and tribulations that we didn't think we would be possible precisely so that we can be better conditions for the arising of Sophia amidst us. And that then is the continual presence of a creative act without which we fall into the meaning crisis because you can basically only deal with the meaning crisis by having a continual source of becoming and meaning known through as Lady Sophia. And so I think part of this conversation too is is the regaining of a concept of Sophia, 
that I think is actually quite useful and important. And that would speak to Mount Sophia as I'm saying, yes, that's exactly. So that's like that notion of the love of wisdom. You cannot have church without Sophia. So where the, where the Christian then, like, I think people like us who basically realize that, and you kind of know that church has something to do, Sophia, the hanging question is, okay, but how do I relate with the church I grew up with? The, the kind of the organizational church. What should my relationship to that be if the people there may not have gone on the pilgrimage to know that church is supposed to be something about Sophia? And that gets into different practices, different skills, different ways to think about it. That gets in kind of nitty gritty things. But we can at least, we can at least free ourselves from the subconscious feeling that we're doing something wrong by associating church with Sophia once you look at the historical case. You look at the historical case and you say, oh, I actually have a basis for this. It's not me just wishing that church was dialogos, that church was these kind of things. No, no, no. Church actually is a lot to do with Sophia. I don't have to feel guilty about that. Now, I do need to maybe think about how I would relate that with the community church, with the people on the ground, because there is a danger with the more Sophia-inclined Christian to then not interact with their community and to get into their bubbles, and there seems to be a danger there. But at least at least we can move beyond acting out of guilt. You know what I mean? Like worrying about guilt. If we can move beyond that, then we can take on those practical questions, I think, from a better footing. So I've appreciated the conversation. Beautiful, beautiful closing reflections from everyone. And Daniel, you never disappoint. Such a potent insight of church being the thing that comes after the pilgrimage and not necessarily before the pilgrimage. So, yeah. Amazing dialogue. Thank you guys so much. I'm going to close off the recording here. Thanks everybody for listening to be continued.